Okay, good afternoon. This is Greg Lois. Thanks for joining me today, September 28th, for expert witnesses and COVID-19. That's right. I decided to change up our topic a little bit to make it a little bit more topical and a little bit more useful. We're going to talk about expert witnesses in general, and then we're going to do a, sort of a practical discussion of how to apply this to the defense of your COVID-19 cases in New Jersey. So uh, let's dive in, shall we? First, thanks for being here today. Happy Monday, end of the month. Happy Yom Kippur, you're celebrating, uh, and thanks for being around. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about experts in general. I'm going to talk about what I like in an expert, what I'm looking for in an expert, how I want the expert to testify, sort of the basics, a quick overview of what we do when we hire experts in New Jersey and how we utilize them. And then I'm going to talk about how we maximize the examination or make the report that we get from the expert as useful as possible. And to make this practical and hopefully useful, I'm going to walk through the new COVID-19 cases that we're defending in New Jersey. Uh, of course, New Jersey on September 14th signed into law uh, the presumption that if an essential worker uh, or first-line responder variously defined through 74 different executive orders uh, has a positive COVID-19 test, the presumption is they got COVID-19 at work. So we're going to talk about how we'll use experts to attack that presumption. All right. Uh, this is totally live. And so this is my first reminder to you to type in questions and ask me as many questions as you can. It really makes this a lot more fun and uh, more useful for you and definitely more entertaining for me. Uh, I will never say your full name. I'll just say your first name so you know I'm answering your question. I will read your question for everybody and then I'll answer it to the best of my ability. You're not confined to the subjects today, which are really independent medical exams in New Jersey and COVID-19 defense. Uh, you can ask me questions about anything and I'll do my best to uh, give you an answer. All right, so let's begin with some basics. Uh, a little bit of an overview here for those of you who are workers' compensation professionals. When do we get an IME in New Jersey? And New Jersey, by the way, is different from many other states in which typically the defense is only getting one, maybe two IMEs in the lifetime of a case. I can compare and contrast that to our uh, other jurisdictions that we practice in where we're getting six, seven, eight IMEs during the course of a case. Uh, so the first time is when you're directed by the court. Oftentimes that'll happen when the claimant already has their IME, and it's very rare, uh, but uh, often, sometimes the petitioner will come to court and say, look, judge, I already got my report with Saul Myers or whoever, and I'm ready to go. Uh, that's a dream state, by the way, but uh, generally speaking, uh, we're the ones who are prompting and pushing our adversary to get their expert report because typically we're already getting ready to order ours, and we're putting together the medicals for them and making sure that they're ready to get their own report. So uh, that's the second time when they already have their report. Uh, more rarely when there's an issue of maximum medical improvement or you're disputing or defending a medical issue in the case. Remember in New Jersey, you're picking and choosing the treating physicians. Uh, we're really directing and controlling care. So there really shouldn't be an issue as to MMI, but uh, sometimes there does need to be an independent expert to come in and say, look, there's no more curative treatment possible or you've exhausted the curative treatment remedies. Uh, Sometimes we'll get an independent expert to challenge causal relationship or a consequential body part. And just think about that uh, when the captain of the ship, the physician that we've chosen as the treating physician pursuant to section 15 says, oh, by the way, this started as a right shoulder case, but now it's turning into a left shoulder case uh, because of overuse or exertion or et cetera. Uh, in general, you're going to be stuck with that in New Jersey. Now, you can get a second opinion in that circumstance, uh, but it's going to be unlikely to prevail. Because remember, if we're picking and choosing the physician, we're generally going to be stuck with what they say, which means, by the way, in New Jersey, you should be picking the very best treaters you can. Uh, last time, we're going to get an IME in New Jersey when there's an issue of permanent residual disability. 
Uh, so I think that covers really the, the broad range of when we're getting IMEs. But to be very fair, in probably 75% of the cases, or maybe even higher, we're getting an IME at the very end of the case. And the only issue left in the case by the time we're getting in the IME is the nature and extent of permanent residual disability, permanency. And whether that's a scheduled body part, like a hand, finger, flip, toe, or that's permanent residual disability, permanent partial disability, something like a low back injury, cervical spine. What do I look for in an independent medical evaluator? Uh, well, in general, I'm looking for better qualifications uh, than the petitioner's expert. Uh, in general, the petitioners are getting uh, IME reports or expert reports from uh, medical providers with absolutely no board certification. Or if they have a board certification, it's in something silly-hearted like family medicine uh, or something like emergency medicine. Well, that's great. That's really nothing. That's really not a great uh, standard. In general, we're using orthopedic surgeons for any type of orthopedic injury. Uh, we're almost never using, you know, I see my adversaries using general surgeons to give opinions. Uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, we're going to also look into the qualifications of the expert. For example, if they got their medical license in 1966 and they haven't had admitting privileges in 20 years, I'm not impressed uh, with uh, that person as a potential medical witness. And in general, we should be able to get independent medical evaluators uh, with uh, much better qualifications, better backgrounds, better uh, uh, fellowships, for example, board certifications always uh, than our adversaries. And that's important because uh, really it's going to come down to a one-time examination and we need to be credible with our experts, so someone with good qualifications. Next, I need them to perform a full and competent examination. In New Jersey, uh, expert reports generally have a very, very short, uh, tiny little uh, review. Okay, I see that we've got the same webcam problem we had last week. It's just popping over to the wrong one. Let me see if I can just fix this real fast. Do, do, do. Uh, everyone just hum a little um, theme music to your, by yourself for a second. Okay, is it back? Yeah, looking like it for now. They're yelling at me. Okay, I must have touched something. I'm not going to touch anything on this desk anymore. Okay, uh, so and again, uh, competent examination now in New Jersey. Uh, generally speaking, our evaluators are not doing things like recording range of motion or really doing much recording at all, but they are describing the examination that they are performing. So that's useful. I'm not looking for a very lengthy examination. I do not believe that the length of time of the examination really has much impact on the quality of the report. Uh, sometimes that's something that our adversaries will cross-examine our experts on. They'll say, look, how could you do a competent cross-examination? Exa examination? It was only 11 minutes long. And I'm thinking to myself, of course, when have you ever been to an orthopedic doctor or, or any real doctor who gives you more than eight or nine or 10 minutes? I mean, how many ways do they need you to bend your knee to tell uh, how disabled the knee is? And typically, the examination is something that they will explain on the stand rather than um, elaborate on in their report. I really don't want an elaborate uh, discussion of that. Uh, next, uh, our independent medical evaluator can give a questionnaire when the petitioner comes to the office. Oftentimes, this will be very useful for us, particularly in uh, are they disclosing their social history? Are they disclosing maybe other injuries or illnesses or conditions that we weren't aware of before? Are they discussing maybe uh, prior claims that they've had? So getting a good and competent questionnaire is useful. Uh, some of my opposing counsel will uh, challenge the use of a questionnaire uh, and they will uh, try to dispute it, but I do think it's a useful thing to do. Next, 
I'm looking for a clear, simple report that is explainable in plain English. If I can't explain this report to the judge, um, I can tell you that it's not going to be a very persuasive report. So I'm looking for something very clear, written in as much plain English as we can, giving a clear percentage of disability. And if there's any need to apportion to a prior condition or pre-existing condition, I need that to be very clearly described in the report in language that everybody can understand. All right, on the stand. Now, pretty rare in, in New Jersey, I can tell you in our caseload, we're only taking to trial less than six or 7% of our overall uh, caseload every year, and we're rarely finishing those. So usually a trial will begin and it will end after the petitioner testifies usually uh, because we've clarified that issue. Uh, it's very rare that we have to put doctors on the stand uh, in this office with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases in uh, in litigation at any one time. We're probably only doing it once a month or less, so very, very re relatively rare. Uh, the doctors can now appear via video, uh, and that's that was before COVID-19. So before COVID-19, the doctors could appear via video. They could give their testimony over uh, any uh, system that we could set up in court, and that's really been very useful in both reducing costs, uh, increasing or improving our scheduling time, and getting the cases to move along. But when the uh, IME doctor is testifying, when our expert is testifying, I need them to stay within the four corners of their report. My adversaries, opposing counsel, will attempt to get them to opine on anything they can think of. So they'll be asking them things like, well, the day you saw them, you said that they could you know, bend over and touch their toes. Were you aware that the next day they had to lay in bed because they were in so much pain they could barely move? Uh, you know, I need to, a doctor who's not gonna go on an adventure with claimant's counsel to start answering hypothetical or speculative questions like that. I also need a doctor who's gonna to listen to me when they're on the stand. So during crossing examination, I'm gonna be signaling this doctor, please stop answering these questions. They're, they go well beyond the scope of your report. So I'll be saying objection, your honor. Uh, this calls for speculation, goes beyond the scope of the report. I'll be making these objections very loudly and very clearly, uh, banging my hand on the table, yelling objection, trying to signal to my expert, like these are not the questions that you should be answering. Uh, so. Uh, the good experts, though, they won't ever fall into that trap because they've testified a million times. They've been prepared for testimony many times, and they know better uh, than to be answering those kinds of adventurous speculative questions and going down those roads. Uh, that's the other great thing about New Jersey and generally in testimony, even with an IME or independent expert who we're not familiar with. So maybe we've chosen them because they have a very specific skill set or expertise. Uh, we have the opportunity to prepare them for cross-examination, which should not be waived. Uh, you should be spending time to get your uh, expert ready, maybe even doing a mock uh, deposition or doing a mock testimony. So to get them ready uh, to testify in court and particularly to respond to your objections, know what those objections are coming. Okay, what can you send to your evaluator in New Jersey? And the answer is just about anything you want. First of all, a good, strong, well-written cover letter is table stakes. Uh, I respect and enjoy many of the risk professionals I work with, uh, but I really do think this is one area where you should have your defense attorney writing the cover letter to be very, very tailored and very specific. Uh, you know, just the, the classic, please examine this claimant, let us know what you think, uh, not enough. I really think a good cover letter is useful and will get a better result. Now, uh, my clients will tell me, but Greg, I'm not paying you for that. Uh, that's going to take two and a half hours of attorney time. I'm not paying for that. All right, cool. Maybe it's not something you need to do in every single case. Maybe your, you know, your finger fracture case or your ankle case or something very simple or straightforward. Maybe you don't need that um, level of attention. Uh, but your more significant cases, and particularly those involving, you know, your inchoate, subjective complaints, you know, your nebulous complaints, the cervical spine cases, 
disc bolt cases, um, RSD, CRPS cases, you know, any psych cases, I think. Those are the ones where we really have these subjective complaints that we need to uh, attack. So the cover letter is table stakes. Next, um, asking the doctor to do a questionnaire and giving them maybe some questions you want them to go through and maybe tailored to the case. It's all okay if you can do it. Um, providing them with non-medical documents. Oftentimes I have uh, petitioners who go to their doctors and they say, uh, how did you develop this low back condition? And they go, well, uh, doctor, I lift 800 pounds a day and you know I've got to do, do all this activity. And really we provide them with a job description and it shows there's no lifting involved. Or uh, things like uh, you know showing the, the doctor, well, the person's claiming that they work 120 hours every week but look, they've never had overtime in three years that they've worked for us, it's not possible. Really starting to control the narrative and not letting the petitioner's subjective complaints and sort of subjective uh, descriptions of their work and their the type of work they do uh, sort of control the day. Uh, just remember that IME doctors, expert doctors, uh, they're just like me. They've probably never worked a hard day in their life. You know, there's no calluses on these hands, these little paws. Uh, never, you know, lifted a shovel for an entire day. Well, the doctor's the same way. If someone comes in there and tells them, well, well, uh, uh, doctor, I work as such and such, and it's a very arduous job, and it's so hard, and I'm on my feet 15 hours a day and all these things, the doctor's going to take it as face value. Uh, so we really need to give them some better information so that they can uh, draw better conclusions about whether the person's um, condition is related to their employment duties. Uh, surveillance video is a great use uh, to send to your IMEs. Now, just remember in New Jersey, you have no duty to disclose surveillance video unless you're going to be using it at court. Uh, and even when you do disclose it, uh, the petitioner must testify before you show them the surveillance video. Now, if you do show the surveillance video to your IME doctor or your independent expert prior to the claimant testifying, you've just destroyed its surprise value, but maybe it didn't have surprise value. And so I'm thinking of surveillance videos that show, you know, the person just going on their activities of daily living. We're not catching them working or doing anything that we think amounts to a real per se fraud. Uh, but it's enough there that maybe I'm going to send this to the IME doctor just so when the person comes in and says, I can't use my hands, and I've got two hours of video of them just driving around, clearly using their hands to hold the driving wheel. I'm like, look, doc, I mean, here you go. Uh, you know, just something to help out the case, but again, may not have surprise value. Uh, there's no limitations on preparations really to an evaluator in New Jersey. Uh, there's no, the only thing that is a limit on this is how much time, effort, blood, and treasure we're willing to expend. So in those higher value cases or cases with a lot of exposure or perhaps complicated exposures where there's apportionment or periods of successive liability, those are the kinds of cases where I really think that we should be spending the time and effort uh, to fully prepare the doctor and the evaluator. All right. What can I do about missed IMEs? I think this is one of the most common questions I get in New Jersey. And I'll tell you that uh, first, in general, missing an IME, um, it's not gonna be dispositive of the case. Pursuant to section 19, you have the right to suspend all payments of benefits under if the person fails to attend an IME. However, I do counsel most clients, just go right ahead and schedule that repeat IME. There's gonna be a missed IME cost. Uh, usually it's $150, sometimes $200. And yes, we can recoup that from the petitioner at time of ultimate settlement. So at the end, of, so just keep track of the costs that they're running up, and we're going to pull that back from them at their settlement. But in general, I tell clients, don't you're not going to win on a failure to uh, prosecute case or prosecute defense or motion uh, when they miss just one IME. My advice is generally take note of it, make sure you have a receipt because we're going to demand repayment for that missed IME cost. 
but re generally reschedule it at least one time. The second time they missed the IME, then yes, I do think we're in front of a judge. I think we're doing a motion to prosecute uh, for failure to prosecute. And in general, you'll get an order that says the petitioner will attend the next scheduled IME or this matter may be uh, dismissed for failure to prosecute, which is a useful thing. It'll really push the case and give you some leverage. All right. Uh, now, let's talk about application of this because I've kind of gone over stuff that I suspect most people on this call uh, already know. Uh, so how are we going to apply this now to New Jersey's new COVID-19 presumption law? Uh, as you know, our silly-hearted governor just signed on September 14th uh, a law that says there is a rebuttable presumption that COVID-19 infection by an essential employee is work-related. Now, uh, last week we talked about uh, all the legal defenses to this. Uh, for example, what is the definition of an essential worker, uh, essential employee? I keep touching this thing and it keeps knocking the webcam out. All right, I'm going to fix it one more time. Uh, do, 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 just play hold music in your head. But anyway, we talked about this last week in our presentation, uh, all the legal defenses. And then, by the way, I think you've got great legal defenses to this uh, law. I'm not, not impressed with this law. I'm not impressed with the way it's written. I think it's such a sloppy law, uh, particularly the fact that it says essential employees, anybody who's been identified in any one of these executive orders, uh, which you know at this point, they're obviously extra constitutional. But all that being said, how are we going to defend the rebuttable presumption? And let's just talk about this in the context of experts. How am I going to refute the medical? What, what am I going to do? So let's look again. What's the rebuttable presumption under the law? Well, you know, it's something that we all understand. It's a legal concept, just like innocent until proven guilty. To rebut the uh, rebuttable presumption, we're going to have to show uh, that the carrier, uh, sorry, we're going to have to show as the carrier or the employer that by a preponderance of the evidence, that just means more than nothing, uh, that the worker was not exposed to the disease. Okay. So the preponderance is going to be demonstrated by us showing one of three or four things like A, uh, this person wasn't working for us. Okay. Two, uh, they, they never came into the workplace. Like my employees, I have 61 employees. I think about 56 of them are currently working from home. They're not here in the workplace. There's no way you could be catching COVID-19 because you have not been here and you have not been here since March 13th, 2020, right? So that's an, that's a second way. Uh, third thing, you could say, well, we are using prophylactic measures, right? So we're using masks and sanitizers and six foot and I put up plexiglass and I have all these things. Uh, you can also argue that there's alternate causation. Well, they got it at home. And all of these arguments are going to be based on some sort of medical expert that's going to come forward. Now, in our advice, most of the medical expertise that should be utilized should be done by way of records review. And when those claims are made, we need to be able and prepared to dispute the causation. Because that's, again, uh, the presumption is that it came from work, but you can still rebut that presumption. And, re and reputing the causation probably is going to take a medical expert. Uh, we started to identify them and we're working with some. So let's talk about how you would win. On the medical side, you're going to look first at the diagnosis. I think this is a very important thing for us to uh, focus on. In the early days of these COVID-19 infections, uh, the diagnosis was anecdotal. So we've got cases from back in March and April in which the person either went to their doctor or just called them up and said, I have the sniffles, I had a fever two days ago, uh, and I have a cough, and they would get a presumptive COVID-19 diagnosis. Uh, as tests become more available and as this became uh, uh, more and more widespread, people were being told to go to the urgent care emergency room and they were diagnosing them through a combination of taking your temperature, listening to your lungs and taking a chest x-ray. 
So we've got some early cases here in which uh, the diagnosis is based on a chest X-ray. Well, that's been thrown out. The American College of Radiology has now said chest X-ray is not a way to diagnose COVID-19 at all. You shouldn't be using it. And so those diagnoses that we think are attackable, you're going to need an expert who's familiar with what the current standards are for diagnosing and say, you know, back then that's what they were doing, Judge, but that's not a valid diagnosis, so you're attacking that. The second way uh, your expert needs to be prepared to attack the diagnosis uh, is going to be to look at the, the second big group of tests where we have people coming in uh, and saying, essentially, I have COVID-19 because I have a positive antibody test. So again, this is experts who are familiar with a couple different things that are wrong with the antibody tests. First is, well, in the beginning, the ones that they were using uh, in the spring and early summer never even tested for COVID-19. They were SARS tests. Uh, and that's because the two, the genomes of the two conditions are so close that they were simply using SAR tests as a way to diagnose COVID-19, saying basically SAR-CoV-2 is so close to SAR-CoV, why not? Let's just use the same test. And they're getting a lot of positives, uh, more than would be, uh, you know, uh, attributable to just simply people who previously had SARS and didn't know it, like not possible. So, you know, just simply saying, well, judge those, those tests, uh, they have some problems with them, knowing the problems of the tests, and then knowing the chronicity of those tests. Because the antibody test doesn't show active infection. The antibody test would only show that two to three weeks prior to taking the antibody test, uh, you were exposed and your body had an immune response. That's it. Uh, and so you could then use that if you have a good expert to go, well, judge, the best timeline we can reconstruct is this person last was in the employment on this day. They may have been infected at some point. Then they have a positive antibody test six weeks later. Judge, all that antibody test says is that three weeks or so prior to the antibody test, they were exposed and had an immune response. It's all that says, Judge. It doesn't point back to our period of employment. So, you know, we're going to attack that test and we're going to attack that presumption and say, look, just because you have this test sometime down the road, the chronicity of the diagnosis is what the doctor can test, can uh, dispute. Finally, with the RNA tests, I can tell you that uh, those tests are going to be more difficult to refute. Uh, however, we have even seen some weakness in the RNA test. Now, the RNA test can only show an active infection, and these are quite invasive. Uh, these are the tests where they're going up your nose, essentially, to determine uh, if you currently have an active COVID-19 infection. Now, entertainingly, uh, the infections only last for a limited period of time, so uh, it's possible to miss the window. But also, the CDC has started bouncing some of these tests as invalid, and that's because of the RNA amplification that they use to determine if the person has an active infection and if it's, uh, it's SARS-CoV-2. And so there's only now currently 58 of these tests that are actually approved by the CDC to diagnose SARS-CoV-2. And there's a whole number of them that are not approved. And the reason for that is the lack of specificity and the, mass, uh, uh, the size of the false positive. So for those reasons, again, the test itself can be attacked. How are you going to do that with a medical expert? Most likely through our opinion would be a records review that's going to say, look, here's, the, here's why this test is infirm or invalid. Uh, also, additionally, with the RNA test, just for fun, uh, there's huge chain of custody issues with those tests. Predominantly, in the beginning, those tests were all being flown to California, and then the results faxed back. All sorts of problems with that. So we do think that these things can be attacked. Uh, since we're just on uh, SARS-CoV-2 and the New Jersey uh, presumption, I just want to leave you uh, with a glass of ice water uh, to those of us who are dealing with this pile of uh, cases that are now coming in the door. First, there's no presumption regarding permanent impairment or any impairment of any kind. Uh, really what we're seeing in predominantly in these cases, uh, most people are getting sick, we're out for two, three weeks, 
they come back, it's over, and never think about it again. So a very low amount of final impairment or permanent impairment, uh, which is the only thing uh, the workers' compensation law can compensate in addition to medical benefits and lost time from work. So really not seeing a, a large value on some of these claimants where they've already come back to work. But be warned about this psychiatric throw-in. So we've already started to see cases in which the person has fully recovered and went back to work, but now is alleging uh, that they have an anxiety disorder or PTSD because they're just scared of going to work because they could maybe catch something else. Uh, so we have those places. We also have mental mentals right now regarding COVID-19 that we're defending, which people are saying essentially, I can't go to work because I'm scared of catching COVID-19. Again, they haven't caught it. They've not been infected. There's nothing about the workplace that would, in particular that would expose them to this condition. They're saying, I'm worried about going to work because I don't want to catch it. And that in itself is my disability. I have a PTSD condition now related to not wanting to go to work because I'm scared of catching maybe someday a disease. Uh, so those are obviously very defensible. And uh, even though they and they don't get the benefit of the presumption as well, I believe, because they are mental, mental, no injury cases. All right. So that's a little bit about uh, use of experts and then just trying to apply some of the we know about uh, experts and how we're going to utilize them uh, to, to COVID-19 defense. It's time for live question and answer. And I hope there are a lot of questions uh, for me to answer because it makes it so much more fun. All right. Uh, Joe says, do you see recovery claims coming in mass from major payers uh, retro to March 9th in light of the new COVID-19 presumption workers' comp bill? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, right now, though, uh, we haven't seen really a big bloom of them yet, uh, but I'm certain that once these uh, payers start realizing that they can now come after us for usual and customary, uh, they will try to do so. Uh, again, uh, the jurisdiction of the case can still be disputed, uh, just because there's a presumption of compensability uh, doesn't mean that it was causally related. And you got to be able to fight that. And again, it might require experts. Um, how might that be initiated? Uh, Joe asks further question. Uh, is the payer carrier, does an employee need to initiate the recovery claims? So no, it's usually the payer, the, the uh, medical provider who's going to bring those claims. They're going to say, hey, these were uh, paid at uh, this rate by this payer, but they really should have been paid for it by the workers' comp carrier. Again, I think these are very defensible cases, uh, but I do presume that they would become as medical provider claims under Section 15.1 of the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act. All right, uh, those are good questions. Those are COVID-19 questions. I don't really see any expert-related uh, questions. Uh, if you did have a question and I didn't answer it or it didn't pop up, let me know and I will be happy to answer it uh, for you via email or any other way uh, that's useful for you. Next month, we're going to talk about defending occupational exposure cases. Uh, this Again, I'm going to probably tailor it to talking a little bit about infection cases or COVID-19 cases. Please join us for that. Uh, thanks for coming, everybody. I hope you have a great rest of the week uh, and end of September. <music>